Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 52. Glad you could join us. Today's episode is a fun and uplifting conversation with Colby's English and Literature Department Chair, Mrs. Kim Crawford. As you'll learn in this episode, Kim is a lover of books and bookstores. If you're a bibliophile, you'll be reminded of the sheer joy of spending hours in a bookstore, browsing the aisles while sipping a cafe mocha and never wanting to leave. Kim brings her love of books to Colby and, as she says, she started teaching online before it was cool. We are proud to have her at Colby and proud to have her as a guest on today's episode. Enjoy. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. Welcome, Mrs. Crawford, to the Colby cast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's our delight. So you've, you've been teaching for Colby for a while. Will you tell us a bit about yourself and your enthusiasm for books and how you came to Colby? Sure. I grew up in North Carolina and met my husband in college at North Carolina, and we have six kids, live north of Atlanta, near Mrs. Langle, and I've actually known Mrs. Langle for much longer than I've been teaching for Colby. Uh, We met at church as part of the mom's group, and I knew she worked for Colby, and it was funny because she mentioned this, you know, this little project she was doing, you know, just creating an online school from whole cloth, and and I asked her, I said, oh, um, you know, in the in the long, long ago, in the before time before kids, I, I used to teach. And she's like, oh, really? And um, had a conversation with my husband because I'd been a stay at home mom for such a long time. And I'm like, I really miss teaching. And I think I'd like to do this. And so went back to Megan and asked her if I could interview. And she uh, and she was surprised and not having known that I did that. And luckily, uh, I interviewed with Mrs. Rawls and Mr. Bayarski, and they came away from the interview feeling that I wouldn't be a total train wreck. And so I've been with Colby for the last eight years since the inception of the online school, and it's it's been really fun sharing my love of books with students. And um, I've always loved books. In fact, my mom used to joke that all that she saw of me growing up was the top of my head because I always had my nose in a book. And and so I've always been a book person. I've taught high school English in the brick and mortar schools. I've taught online. I worked at a boutique publishing house as a copy editor and I sold books at Barnes and Noble, which was every bit of the magical fairyland you'd think it would be. And so it's really fun. I, I have an affinity for teenagers. And so it's just so much fun hanging out with teenagers, talking about books, and, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, writing something down. And so, you guys, symbol, blah, 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 protagonist. (laughs) You're the perfect person to to talk to about (laughs) this. And it sounds like your love for books has played out in all these various iterations throughout your life, being a huge aficionado of Barnes & Noble, especially in its back in the day. What a fun, happy place. There was actually in in my college town, there was a small bookstore that we would go to as a matter of course. Funny that you mentioned the bookstores that you went to growing up. One of our first dates was, you know, I had a Barnes and Noble, but I didn't have a Borders. And so my 
then boyfriend, now husband, he's like, I have this amazing place to show you. <laughs> and so he took me to a Borders. <laughs> have books from many stages in my life. It's funny when uh, when we got married and combined households and, you know, poor college students, right? Poor law student and poor teacher. We uh, enlisted our friends to help. And, you know, they had helped some other friends and they're like, oh, she has so many shoes. And with me, they're like, oh my gosh, why does she have so many books? And, you know, that's what I do. I have books. That's what I do. <laughs> so our friends, that's right. Well, we can we fit right in here because we've, we've got a lot of books and we come from a book loving family. So this is right the place. So we're looking today at the Colby Literature Curriculum and hoping you can take us in a bit of a deep dive there. When you meet someone and they and you tell them that you teach for Colby Online as the chair of the of the literature department, what's your typical spiel there? Well, first I tell them that I've been teaching online since before it was cool. So, you know, mm -hmm. with this uh pandemic, everyone's online and and so many people have been thrown into it that um you know, Colby has been doing it for a long time and we're, I like to think pretty good at it and, mm -hmm. and that uh, we are a classical and Catholic and Ignatian based school. And what, uh, you know, what that means for us is that first and foremost, we're Catholic. Everything we do is going to be directed at getting our students to God, leading our students to God and doing things for the greater glory of God. You know, it's spelled out in our school motto of ad maiorum de glorium and, you know, for the greater glory of God. I'm sure I bungled that Latin. If uh, Dr. Almanzar was here, you'd go, oh, Mrs. Crawford, that was terrible. <laughs> but, I, I doubt but, that. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> and, you know, with those Ignatian techniques, um, you know, they have fancy names, pre-lection, active learning, reflection, and repetition. And honestly, that's just good teaching. And teachers, whether or not they call them by those names, do those things naturally. And so what you have at Colby is a bunch of like-minded people, not only, you know, all trying to use best practices for teaching and you know, inst instill critical thinking, but actively trying to lead our students to God. And so that's something, you know, oh, Catholic school, you know, but I feel like, you know, there are Catholic schools that, you know, oh, we go to mass on Friday and we wear uniforms. And then there are Catholic schools that really are trying to lead people to Jesus. And I, I feel like we're definitely in the latter category, actively trying to bring people to Jesus. And um, with the classical education, to me, that means that which is foundational. And it's kind of like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Nothing's going to blow it down, right? When you've been exposed to texts that have been deemed critical enough to form a society and to be handed down through the ages, you have a greater understanding of where you've been, where you are now, and where you could be going. And no amount of trendiness or current fashion can unduly influence what you've been educated to know is true. And that doesn't mean, you know, be stubborn or unyielding just because, you know, that's new and popular and I don't like it, you know, get off my lawn. It's not that. It's that you mean you have the tools to carefully consider 
if this is a direction that you wish to go in. And so it's about critical thinking and connections and seeing how it all ties together. That term critical thinking, I hear that so often. And I think since becoming more familiar with Colby, I have a better understanding of what that means. I don't know if it's um, along the same lines as the uh, the title of an episode we did earlier in the year of that word doesn't mean, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Exactly. <laughs> with, um, <laughs> we were referring to rhetoric and logic at that time. And I think it applies even to critical thinking that makes so much sense. I'd love to hear more about how the Ignatian and classical influences on the curriculum, how those factor in with the Catholic dimension. Yes. And so with that Catholic dimension, when you can put together, you know, all this critical thinking and all these foundational texts, it almost doesn't matter if what you're reading is Catholic because everything we look at is through a Catholic lens, right? You know, with literary theory, you can look at it through all kinds of different lenses, you know, new historicism or formalism or what have you. And we are always looking at things through a Catholic lens. And it's nice if the book has obvious Catholic connections, but it's not necessary because everything we're doing is pointing back to God and we're working on critical thinking. It doesn't have to. It's great to be able to find and make those connections for yourself. And you can read absolutely any book. And when you have been well-formed, when you have been properly formed, you can always direct things back to God, whether that was the intention of the author or not. And so, you know, with this foundational classical education, how that affects our curriculum is... um, how we've put it together. It's a gradual implementation. And in elementary, you know, you're getting them familiar with stories and places and how things are put together. And in middle school deepens those components of stories and styles and writing and grammar. And we actually split out literature and English into two separate classes. And we continue that split into high school. So that way we have more time to focus focus on those different aspects of it. In high school, the English courses follow the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then in 12th grade, you get to uh, have some fun with creative writing. And then the literature progresses from Greek to Roman to literature of Christendom, and then finally with modern literature in 12th grade. And we've picked these lasting pieces that have stood the test of time. They've been tried They've been measured and they have been found worthy to keep coming back to and studying again and again. Can you give me an example of one way that you can, or a couple of ways that you start building in the critical thinking, even in the elementary stages? A lot of open-ended questions, right? Not just, you know, did you read questions? You know, what color was the red fish? And, you know, red fish, blue fish, (laughs) it was red. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, things that get them thinking about what their own thoughts are. You know, would you rather have a red fish or a blue fish? Would you, (laughs) would you like to eat with a goat on a boat? And that Mm -hmm. type of thing. And, uh, And, you know, as you get them used to, exploring their thoughts and not just, um, you know, regurgitating answers, it helps them, you know, expand their mind. And then in middle school, we have more of those open-ended questions. And then by the time 
um, you're in high school, you're really examining the literature with, uh, you know, what the author has put down, but then also what you think about it. That, um, you know, the philosophy of Colby's approach to literature has, you know, these four attitudes and a four-fold test with these different levels. And these attitudes are the assimilative, critical, vocational, and recreational, which deal with, you know, facts of human existence and critiquing the world around us, formation of the whole person, and using leisure time well. And then also this fourfold test approach to literature, the literal, moral, allegorical, and eschatological and biblical level, you know, that focuses on facts and judging moral actions, and then actions, judging the actions as they relate to salvation, and then dealing with the whole human journey to heaven, it is, um, you know, baby steps, right? Which fish color do you like better to all the way up to you know, wow, Raskolnikov just killed that lady. How do you think that's going to affect his, you know, his final destination, his relationship with God? And so it really covers everything. Wow, yes. We've gone through the elementary literature up through junior high, and then ours have started taking the online literature courses starting in high school. One of my daughters is reading Swiss Family Robinson right now, uh, thinking about how they have the family made use of what was around them at their shipwrecked site. What what do they think of that? And what what would they do? What would the children, our children, do in their situation? So I, I can see it the process taking hold where it's they're thinking more about it and building up those critical thinking skills, not so much just how many books can I read in quick succession. So having having long been one to read a lot of book blogs and listen to book podcasts and things like that, I hear challenges to cultivating the love for and openness to reading. One of them being this idea of schooling the fun out of reading. Does that pretty familiar territory to you? Do you get dragged into those frequently? Sometimes, you know, it's funny because so many students, you know, perhaps they, you know, prefer sports or video games or, you know, maybe they're a math and science kid and they're oh, not, reading's okay. Mm-hmm. And all that is fine. But reading is wrapped into so many things. It's, it's like the best of everything in one. It's adventure and it's escape. And it's also learning how to deal with things before you have to yourself. And, you know, I love that Swiss Family Robinson, you know, what would you do if you were in the situation? And so many times I've come across a situation that reminds me of something from a book. And I have an idea of how to respond because I've read about it. And so I'm like, oh, yes, this is like when Sebastian and Brideside Revisited, you know, did the thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, he did not do a good job with that. I will do better. And it's, uh, it's so much fun to put yourself in that character. And so with the, you know, cultivating that love and openness for reading and because, you know, you don't want it something that can be so fun and instructive to just, oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, reading is horrible. And so I think one of the best things to do to cultivate that is to demonstrate enthusiasm for it. And, you know, it's funny, I liken it, you know, even if a parent is not a reader themselves, for instance, I am not a morning person. 
and neither is my daughter Kate. And she she just turned eight and she will tell you, I'm not a morning person. And she is just my no, right? Hi, Kate. How are you today? No. And so <laughs> when waking her up, even though I am not a morning person, I am super sunshiny and hello, Kate, let's get ready for the day. Yay. And, and so I liken it to that, that, um, you know, you need to demonstrate enthusiasm for it and hopefully it'll catch their interest. It'll, you know, my mom is clearly crazy. Why is she so crazy about this? <laughs> and it's, um, you know, and try and make time for it to be fun. Something that our family does with, you know, varying levels of enthusiasm from participants is that we'll have reading parties and we'll all grab a book and sit on the couch together to go off into our own worlds, right? We're all sitting together, but we're all doing our own thing with our book. And, you know, someone will stop and, you know, if they're laughing, we'll say, what's so funny? And they'll explain and share and, and it can be fun. And I have a daughter and she is not into reading and it makes me nuts because it's my most favorite thing ever. And, and I think she does it sometimes just to antagonize me. I don't like books, except she will quietly come to me sometimes and say, mom, I really do like books. I just don't like boring books. And so yeah. knowing how to find something that clicks with your child is really helpful. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's wonderful that there are all these lists out there, you know, top 10 books for, you know, people who play soccer or top 10 books for, you know, eight-year-old girls who love unicorns. And it's so great that people have made resources available to help parents find books that will click with their kids. One yep. thing that uh, I find some of my kids like are graphic novels and they like being able to, you know, have something that looks more like a comic and yet also has some text that they can read and they can look at the pictures. And I find that pictures and stories, I mean, obviously that's what we start out with, with picture books when we're tiny. Um, but big kids like them too. And so, yep. and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, one uh, series that I really like is great illustrated classics. And they're great for getting good stories into younger minds. And not only does it give you the gist of the story, I mean, it is very watered down, but one page is story and another page is a picture which, you know, if you don't mind interrupting narrative flow, you can totally stop in color and, uh, and you know, go back to later in color. And if they really like the story, they can go and read the original version and already have a good basis of understanding of what that story is about. And uh, one of my um, older kids in middle school, he had to read 25 books a year. They, you know, they kept a list, checked it off, had to meet these benchmarks. And he is just, he's more an information guy. And so he was really struggling with how to fit in all these fiction books. And so we use those. And that dude went back and read Moby Dick because he read the great illustrated classic. And he's like, I really liked the story. Let me go seek out the original. And so um, I think for reluctant readers, just enthusiasm and trying to match them to a book and meeting them where they're at. You know, if they still like pictures, okay, find a book with pictures. 
There's so many graphic novels available now. That's right. We just brought home recently, and I don't mind saying I was a little bit, mm, I guess skeptical might be the word. Uh, among them were graphic novels of Anne of Green Gables, A Wrinkle in Time, The Tale of Despero, and I'm forgetting the fourth one, several of them on the Colby list, many of which uh, at least some of the kids had read here. Uh, a few of them, the youngest has not read yet. So I was thinking, hmm, do I, what do I think about this graphic novel version before she reads the full version? Maybe she will enjoy the graphic novel and the same thing will happen. She will then go on and read the unabridged version, the original. Uh, so we'll see how that all plays out. I, I like hearing your input on on the importance of the visual kind of drawing in and also the interest. Certainly, I, I invite their input on making book selections from the list when we're choosing books for literature. And same thing with other fun books. And But working through resistance, you know, the graphic novels or the illustrated classics, I'm not familiar with that series. Uh, things like that, or, and even the read-alouds. We, we still do some read-alouds here. We just finished All of a Kind Family that had been on my list for a long time. We finally got to it. So have there been instances, whether with Colby or your previous teaching experience, where you have found ways to navigate through learning challenges or learning differences like dyslexia and other things like that that, um, way, that factor into approaching literature? Absolutely. And, you know, with learning challenges and specifically dyslexia, um, as the mother of a child with dyslexia, I've learned that you need to reach out for help. You Nobody can do all the things all by themselves all the time. And it's so important to put support systems in place, even if it's just something as, you know, seemingly simple as letting your teacher know or letting administration know. And, you know, as a parent and with our principle of subsidiarity, you know, that the parent is the primary teacher, we want parents, you know, in partnership with us to feel they can reach out. And, you know, it can be as easy as a heads up, you know, oh, by the way, so-and-so has this issue. I don't want any accommodations. I just wanted to let you know. Or it can be as, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I could really, really use some help with this. But it's really helpful as teachers, as administration to know. So that way, you know, we're just aware and we can kind of keep an extra eye. And so, oh, hey, I know your students uh, struggles with anxiety and I see that they haven't turned in the last, you know, two assignments. Everything cool? And we can, you know, proactively reach out and help uh, help get that student back on track before it becomes like this crazy snowball of, oh my gosh, the semester's over and I haven't turned in anything. <laughs> and so it, uh, it helps with that. And, you know, at no point will a whole semester go by and no one will have contacted you. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it should not be news, you know, in May. Oh, by mm -hmm. the way. <laughs> so we we try and keep an eye on everybody in general, but it's helpful to know, you know, okay, not only will I keep an eye, I'll keep two eyes, right? Yeah. And it helps to reach out. It helps to reach out. And then also there are so many resources available these days. And oh my gosh, the internet is such an amazing and wonderful thing that with a little bit of research, you have all these resources at your fingertips 
And also one thing that um, I've noticed with my own dyslexic child is that audiobooks are a great help here. And she can follow along and, you know, read the text as someone is reading it to her. Or, you know, it can just help give her confidence. So that way, when there are words that she doesn't recognize, she can hear them in context and kind of try and work on figuring them out from there. And it's funny, I, uh, I've heard never make fun of anybody who mispronounces a word. That means they learned it through reading, right? And that yeah. is great because for such a long time, I mispronounced the word lugubrious as lugubrious because I had only read it. And and I don't know. I find G's hard anyway. Is it hard? Is it soft? Which one is which? <laughs> and so it helps to hear how it's uh, pronounced. And then also it's uh, it's good for not only people with learning challenges, but reluctant readers as well. It's kind of like someone is reading the story to you. And it can make it less lonely or less boring. And as I mentioned, you can follow along with the text. And then also for those fidgeters, for the uh, wiggle worms, it's great that they can just listen and absorb while also doing something else, you know, while kicking a ball against a wall or, you know, completing their chores or, you know, just kind of sitting there being wiggly and they can still be doing something that's got their mind engaged. but you know, they don't have to necessarily sit still for. I uh, I mentioned earlier that I've got six kids and the laundry, it never ends. And I just, oh my goodness, how much I dislike laundry. And so to uh, make it more palatable, I listen to an audiobook. And so all of a sudden those clothes have folded themselves. Not really, but, <laughs> but it does make it better. So... Right. Like, what else can I launder now? <laughs> My book is good. I'm not ready to stop yet. That's right. <laughs> yep. We are big audiobook fans here. We have used them with listening to our literature books. Our library has these playaways that are sort of, well, now they're smaller than phone or iPod size, but you can plug in earphones to them and, and they're almost like a device. So for those who are attracted to having a little device, something like that, that can kind of an entree as well and it's true they they are when listening to their own books rather than if it's uh, if we're playing it on a speaker for everyone to listen to if they're just listening on their own typically they'll they might be doing something uh, building with legos or drawing or whatever or cleaning the room very often though we'll find them just stopped they're engrossed in the story there's been a lot that's come out lately about audiobooks, you're reading, you are reading the book when you're listening to it as an audiobook. It, it counts, so to speak. And so there's that and, and it, uh, and also if they're uncertain about a book just from its cover or whatever, and we get going on the audiobook pretty soon, they're hooked. So big audiobooks fans here. Yep. Yes. And I just, I find it so helpful and wonderful because it really does help pass the time. And I'll listen to like six or seven audiobooks for every book that I physically read just because, you know, as a mom of six, I'm always busy with something. <laughs> and so right. I spend a lot of time driving, a lot of time, you know, cooking and washing dishes. And, and, uh, and yes, I would love to just sit on the couch and flip those pages, but needs must, right? And I think it does count that uh, listening to audiobooks absolutely counts. So 
Earlier in the year, we spoke with a mom who has a few children graduated at this point and some still in Colby. And she had some great resources for those with dyslexia. In our show notes, I will link back to that previous episode with Beth Gaff that refers to more about dyslexia for more information about this. Colby also gaps. So. She's awesome. And then we talked to two, her two alumni, um, Claire and Anthony, after that. And they, they were just Yes, awesome. I've had both of them. They are wonderful. What a great family. So uh, in addition to these audiobooks and other resources we've been talking about, Colby publishes a list of book recommendations. How can folks find that these days? Yes, the Colby Recommended Reading List is uh, such a good book of lists and and there's something for everyone and how it breaks it down by grading group and and um you know obviously it doesn't have every worthy book because how could it but it's mm-hmm. got so many and you can easily obtain a copy by ordering it from the Colby bookstore. <laughs> okay, we will find that link and put it in the show notes for this episode too. Yeah. I like how many of the books on the list, the literature lists, they're the first in a series. So like the Redwall book with the many that follow after that. If, if someone really enjoys Redwall, they can keep on with that. Outside of these books and the Colby list, that'll keep us busy for a while. Uh, Mrs. Quayer has recommended to me uh, the Bethlehem Books publisher. They have many living history books and, and similar things. Do you have others that you like to throw out there when people are asking you about books? Pretty much the books that I recommend are books that I've enjoyed too. And I know that sometimes, you know, the distinction is made between books for fun and books that are instructive and I will read this in school. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it needs to be such a big distinction. Um, I think it's okay to read books that are fun, that are just fun. And you will just through practice and the environment that we create it, Colby, you will find connections that lead you back to God. And, you know, YA, young adult is popular with a lot of our students. And, you know, we'll talk about it. Our seniors will talk about it. And, you know, oh, I like Harry Potter. Oh, I like uh, Twilight, (laughs) and you know, whatever. And yet there's always some hook in there that will make them, that will remind them of something and lead them back to God. And so I just tell people to read what they like. If you like motorcycles, you know, maybe the mouse in the motorcycle is for you. That's, you know, something about a motorcycle that maybe would hook you in. Or if you like books about animals, oh, have you read Old Yeller? And so I uh, try to mostly go with something that they're interested in. And um, one thing about being a voracious reader is that you almost always have a recommendation. And um, I read, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and she had read an article that said, want a book rec? Don't ask someone who reads a lot of books because they'll read any old thing. And I'm like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You should always ask someone who's read a lot of books because they will have lots of different suggestions for you and be able to narrow it down to what would be most interesting to you. Oh, you like World War II books. Have you read All the Light We Cannot See? Well, I don't really want something about a soldier. Oh, well, how about the French Resistance? Have you read The Lost Girls of Paris? And, you know, you can narrow it down based on their interests. And so I'm a big fan of read what you like. And, you know, when you've been well-formed, when you've been well-catechized, when you have that foundational 
structures within your education, it will always lead you back to God. Super. I love how this idea of the formation that they're receiving, the faith formation, the intellectual formation, the Catholic lens that they are learning to look through, they can approach any text that way. And when we think about them going out into the world, them being able to look through the lens and see it and not be afraid of of engaging the culture as they encounter it, kind of that idea of having them in a bubble. So having this formation so that they can encounter what is to come is, is so very valuable. Yes, I 100% agree. You know, when you have this solid foundation, you can tackle anything and, you know, you can do it within that safe environment. In modern lit and AP lit, we read, you know, crime and punishment where there is kind of a graphic ax murder and how, how do you deal with that? And Brideshead Revisited has alcoholism and adultery and, you know, those are pretty unsavory things. How do you deal with that? And, you know, when you can look at it through a Catholic lens, you know how to deal with that. You can tackle anything. And, you know, we live in the world. We don't need to be of the world, but we have to live in the world and have to interact. And it'd be great. It'd be great to live in a bubble, but we don't. And we're going to have to interact with people who share our beliefs, who don't share our beliefs, who share our beliefs on some things, but, oh man, you are totally wrong about that. And we have to be able to interact with those people because they are children of God. Jesus loves them just the same that he loves you and me. And we need to be able to critically think about what they're saying, to treat them charitably and compassionately and to always stay on our path to God. And you know what? It'd be great if we could bring them along with us by you know, reasoning well, because we've been formed well. I so agree. And I love what you said about encountering life events or circumstances in life that you read about in a book first, and it, that really helping you deal with that same for me. And so, yeah, there's so much to be gained from our approaching literature with this with this care and learning to read closely and think deeply about what we're reading. And you've, you've offered us so much to think about and, and hope there's so much hope and I appreciate it so much. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to address? One thing that, you know, when you sent the outline, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Um, I'm glad we don't participate in this cancel culture. Where, you know, the University of Leicester in England is taking Chaucer off its required reading list, which to me is insane. It's insane. Do you need to read everything Chaucer wrote? No, he didn't write that much. Not that much has survived, but you need to read something, right? He's the father of English poetry and you need to know what's gone before. So that way you can look forward and move forward with the knowledge of the past. And T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, you know, he includes all these crazy classical illusions that, uh, you know, even people who had a classical education probably didn't get everything. And, you know, he's partly doing it to be difficult on purpose. So that way you have to really know what came before so you can bring it forward with you. You can pluck out the good 
discard what you don't need and bring it forward with you. And I think to eliminate Chaucer is insane. I mean, spend a day on Chaucer. You don't have to spend a semester or a month or even a week, but you have to mention him. You have to talk about him. And it's, to me, just, you know, this moving toward, you know, we should dump everything that came before is insane. I mean, you know, those who do not, uh, to, to paraphrase Santayana, mm-hmm. right? Those who do not uh, know their literature are doomed to repeat it, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so true. And is it when some controversy comes up or when the idea that is floated to cancel this or that, is it more a matter of looking through the lens again? Just like you're saying, approaching the, the difficult texts, same thing, if we, if we remove the foundations of the canon, then how that lessens their ability to approach those situations in their own lives as yes. best they could. Yes. And I like when authors recognize what's come before and, you know, echo it or call back. And that doesn't mean, you know, keep telling the same story over and over. There's this theory, there are only six stories in the world, you know, <laughs> but how you tell it uh, varies. And I recently read a book Uh, called Mexican Gothic. And it was fine. It was kind of a fun, light beach read. And even with as fluffy as that may or may not have been, there were echoes of what came before. There was Rebecca, there was Jane Eyre, there was Dracula. There were all these great echoes that I was able to recognize because of my previous reading, because I, I know what's come before. And so I was able to appreciate it in this modern interpretation. And I appreciated that the author also got it. And so, and it was, it was unlike a story I had read before. It was, um, you know, it was an, a new telling of a haunted house story. And it was, uh, it was fun because it was the old applied and made new. There's a lot to be said for that. And as you're talking about enjoying this book that you might consider, well, I think you use the word fluffy. I There are a number of those that I have enjoyed that they have their place. One of the purposes of Colby's, you know, one of those philosophies of literature is recreational to use your time well. And if you enjoy reading, it's okay to read escapist literature now and then. You know, it can warm you up for the bigger stuff. On my list is to read the Brothers Karamazov. I have not read it yet. It's really thick. And yet yet I love crime and punishment. I love big books. And I cannot lie, right? But um, I just, I'm working up to it. I, it keeps coming at me. Oh, you should read this in all these different directions. So I'm, I'm inching toward it. But uh, do I feel like I need to, oh, I can only read high quality literature all the time. No, I really enjoyed Twilight. I thought it was really fun and fluffy and silly. And just, it took me like two days to read it. And it's sometimes it's just really fun to plow through a book and have a good time with it. Yep. And it's, it kind of ties in with that idea of not taking ourselves too seriously also. I've been interesting too. It's a fully human experience. I mean, Jesus's first miracle was at the wedding of Cana. Do we really think he was standing around not talking to people with a sour look on his face? No, he was interacting with his family, joshing around with his friends. And, you know, he turned water into wine. And, and how can we not 
enjoy the the light parts of ourselves, the humorous parts of ourselves, the levity. It's uh, it's not all about being serious and dour and uh, you know contemplative all the time. There's room for there's room for all of it. Yes. Well, Mrs. Crawford, this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for coming to the Colby Cast. We hope to have you back sometime soon. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam, 